The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. Today we are going to talk about selling fine art in 2018. And we're going to talk about how that compares to the way we sold when we were at the Grand Canyon. And that was between 1998 and 2003. Yes. And also talk about how the changes are affecting uh, the world of fine art sales. So where do we start? What kind of challenges do we have today? Let's start at the beginning. Okay. Once upon a time, in <laughs> a faraway was... <laughs> show, there was an artist selling his or her work. I think we should start by saying that uh, one of the challenges today is that, A, there's a whole lot more photographers and artists uh, who are selling their work. I agree. Especially photographers. And B, people all have a camera on their cell phone. And so creating photographs is not as challenging as it used to be. This is true. And I think that that's a factor. Because we've asked ourselves quite often how well we would have sold at the Grand Canyon in the age of cell phones. Would we have sold the same amount? Would we have sold less? Would it have made a difference or would it have made no difference? Right. Because when we sold, making a good photograph, not just taking a photograph, but printing it, framing it, and all of that, was very challenging. You had a film, you had to deal with the fact that uh, printing was very elusive. You know, mm-hmm. unless you went to a pro lab or you knew how to do it yourself, you couldn't get a very good print. Right. And we made a lot of sales on the basis that people looked at my work, you know, my prints, and were like, oh my God, you must have a fantastic camera. And of course, we know that that's not true as a remark, but what they did is they did not separate the act of taking a photo from the act of processing and printing the photo. Right. For them, you press the button, you wear me, you got a great shot, you wear them, you got a lousy shot. And I think that today, people have moved on quite a bit in terms of knowledge, and they know that to get a good photograph is not just pressing a button, there's also the processing, there's the printing. And there is so many places now where you can print online. Yes. I mean, even though, you know, you may not know what you're doing as far as processing and printing, you can send a JPEG to a lab, you can send a cell phone photo to a lab, and you can get a pretty darn good print. You can. And I think that that may have cut down on our sales. What do you think? I think so. There just were not that many people photographing. Even along the rim, when we were selling, I would watch a lot of the tourists. Some of them would take a picture here and there with a camera, but a lot of them were just walking the rim and just enjoying being at Grand Canyon. They weren't taking their own pictures. That's true. Because you either had to buy an expensive camera, you know, a DSLR, or at the time, simply an SLR, you know, a single lens reflex, or you had some little camera like a brownie or a 110, you know, a point and shoot. And there was no in between, you know. Right. And so tourists, for the most part, had these little disposable cameras, you know, the Kodak disposable cameras that you bought at the gift shops. Yes, they or had those. they were serious amateurs and they had good cameras. And those that had the disposable cameras bought prints from us. Those that had the good cameras, for the most part, did not buy prints from us. So the market was large. But today, everybody has a cell phone, of course, and most of these cell phones can take photographs at a pretty high resolution, you know, 10 to 18 megapixels right now. 
And the processing is not really a problem anymore because you can send the JPEGs or the photos to a lab and they'll take care of that for you. Right. And you can upload them. So you don't have to actually go to a lab. You definitely don't have to send a film. You don't have to wait for it to come back. You don't have to edit your film, photograph. You just select the best photos, send them, see what happens. Yes. The last hurdle for somebody who does not want to buy a print is actually the matting and the framing. Yes, I agree. But what we're seeing now is a lot of places will do finishing, for example, canvas wraps or printing and then mounting on metal or on wood. It's all there. It is. It's all available. Yeah, and it's easy and it's inexpensive. I mean, I know that you can get a relatively good print, you know, not a personal print, but let's say a 16 by 20 for about $20. And so we sell our, at the time we sold ours, a 16 by 20 was close to $200. What's the point, right? Yes. Well, when we did the Grand Canyon show, not only did they love the images, but they were very impressed with the matting and the framing Right. at that time. A lot of people did not cut their own mats or frame their own work. At that time, they weren't even framing their own pictures, I don't think, for the most part. And I I think that that still holds true. Cutting a mat is not easy. There's no automated way to do that. But the trend has moved from matting and framing to just having canvas wraps to just mounting on wood or metal or things like that. Yes. Where there's no need to have a mat, there's no need to have a frame. And uh, the finishing is a whole lot simpler than it used to be. It is. I was one of the first ones at the Grand Canyon to actually offer prints mounted on wood. Oh, yes, that's true. And that was very successful. It was very successful. And it had a beautiful UV coating on it. They could be hung in direct sunlight, and there was no problem with it fading or anything. And then to wipe it, all you needed was just to wipe it with a damp towel. Mm -hmm. Microfiber wasn't big back then, you know, so we just used a soft cloth. Yeah, I wonder, it's impossible to say, because unless we went back and had a show again and tested the waters, there's no way to know for sure if we would sell as much or more or less. Well, but I, it's an important question. I stopped doing shows in 2008 because right. I would go to Scottsdale regularly on the weekends right. to do an art show there, and I was doing well there. Well, I'm not saying that you can't sell artwork anymore. What I'm saying is there are differences. There are differences. And one of these differences is everybody has a cell phone. It's impossible to not acknowledge that. Another difference is that print finishing has become very easy to get. Just go online, you know. I mean, I know that you can do that from most stores. You don't have to go to the store anymore. You can do it online. You can upload. And I also know that finishing has been now taking the direction of being a simpler process with just canvas wraps or mounting on wood or mounting on metal. All of that can be done by your lab, right? Yes. And matting and framing is not as big. That doesn't say that you can't sell prints anymore. But I do wonder if we could have increased our prices proportionally to the increase in the cost of living. Mm -hmm. Because we really don't know what the market could bear now at the Grand Canyon. We know what it can bear in other locations, but in a touristic location, I'm not sure what it could bear. Because if we follow the increase in the cost of living, and if we follow the increase in my own pricing, the increase has been close to tenfold. And I'm not sure that we could get that in a touristic location. Yes. And so what I'm starting to think is that we may see the end of selling photographs in touristic locations. That may be one of the outcomes. Yes. Well, they've already started taking photographs for sale out of some of the gift stores. 
Cameron Trading Post, but even at Grand Canyon, you're hard-pressed to find a bin of photographs for sale in the gift stores. And when you do, they're extremely inexpensive. That's true. Because I look regularly, and I think right now we are looking at 8 by 10 mat size for $9.95. You're looking at 10 by 15 for 15 or not even $20. That's correct. Yes. And they are pretty good quality. Yes, I mean, they I wouldn't are. call them fine art with an investment value, but they are pretty good quality. And they are competitive with what somebody would pay ordering them online. Oh, yes. And I think that that may be the whole idea here. So what we are looking at is basically artists selling extremely large amounts, you know, super high volume. And I mean, nice we, we thought cutting. we did volume, but they were, we were not doing that much of a volume compared to what we are doing now. Because in order to make money on something so inexpensive, you have to sell thousands, literally. Yes. Because the profit margin for an artist, if you sell, let's say, just for the sake of example, an 8 by 10 mat size for $15, and I don't even think it's $15, I think it's nine ninety five. what it means is that they are selling it wholesale anywhere from one-third to one-half, depending on the location. So either... $3 or $5 wholesale, and their cost has to be around a dollar to $2 in order to generate a profit. So they are buying mats in bulk, they are printing in bulk. There's yes. just no possibility to have a high-quality item. I mean, it looks good, but it doesn't mean that it's high-quality. And obviously, it's mass-produced, and it's probably not made by them totally. They probably have people mounting it for them and all of that. Right. We already had some of that when we were at the Grand Canyon because Janet um, was saying that her husband had cramps signing the prints. Oh, yes, Because I he remember. signed so many of them. Yes. And so what it means is that in order to actually make money today, you don't want to sell in a touristic location, and you definitely don't want to sell at these prices. Yes. You have to sell in an environment like an art show where you can actually sell on the basis of your name and get a reasonable price. I agree. I mean, a reasonable price for an 8 by 10 mat size would be today $45 minimum, right? Entry price. Yes. And for a larger size like a 16 by 20, it's got to be... 200 to 300 dollars and you're never going to get that in a touristic location no, not anymore not. yeah i think we may have seen the end of a era so to speak and we were there at the right time at the right place and usually that's what it takes to be successful you have to be at the right place at the right time and i yes. think that's what we were it was competitive it was difficult we learned a lot and it ended and maybe it ended not just because the grand canyon wanted us to leave Maybe it ended because, after all, it was the time to end. Right. I mean, if we had stayed, how many more years do you think we had? I don't think we had that many. I mean, maybe five years. Who knows? Yeah, I I don't even know. I'm not sure. Well, it's all tied to the expansion of the cell phone. 2003, there was virtually no cell phones. It really started around 2007, and then it's been doubling in quantity every year. Oh, yes. Well, we had our first digital summit in 2003 with Michael Reichman. Yeah, but nobody quite used a cell phone back then. No, that's true. The the cell phone expansion really started in very large numbers around 2007. It's 10 years old, 10 to 12 years old. I agree. Yeah, and it's been doubling in quantity ever since. There was, uh, you know... A lot more people had cell phones in 2008 when I was doing shows, but the artists were not, believe it or not, on their phone the whole entire time when I was doing shows in 2008. So it still hadn't really... Well, 
Yeah, but you can't off. you can't look at that because the reason why people were not on their phone all the time in two thousand and eight is because the service plans were very limiting. Yes, you paid per minute. You did, and there was a, a maximum, and that maximum was reached very quickly as far as bandwidth and download and all of that. And so people were controlling themselves in order to avoid having to pay enormous sums of money just to get on the phone. Today. Most plans are completely open. There's no limit. It's unlimited. unlimited. Yes. It's a flat fee. And for that reason, people are on the phone all the time, yes. regardless of where they are. I mean, they are watching movies in the subways. They are texting all the time. They don't care because there's no cost. Whether you use it a little bit or a lot, it's the same price. So, you know, <laughs> we right. use it a lot. <laughs> so that, that's not the same as taking photographs. No, it is Because isn't. when you take a photograph, you're not using bandwidth. You're just using the storage on your camera, you know, unless you upload them to the cloud. But most people don't. They just capture them and keep them on their camera and upload them later on. I think what has happened is that the growth of cell phone photography has expanded also a lot. In 2008, it still was not that big. Correct, yeah. And I think that now it has become humongous. It I mean, has. we go to Antelope Canyon, everybody has a camera, 95% of the people have a cell phone. Yes. The death of the inexpensive digital camera is caused by that. There's no more room now because of the quality of cell phone cameras for an in-between camera between a cell phone and a DSLR or a uh, high-quality digital camera. Oh, I agree. The kind of cameras that we used in the beginning, you know, inexpensive digital cameras, the market is gone. Well, we yeah. have the digital rebel. Well, and that's still there because it's a DSLR. Yes. But my very first digital camera was actually... Was it I, a Sony? It was not a Sony. It was an Epson 700. Oh, yes. It was 4 megapixel I or 5 megapixel. Well, it was, I think, 3 because Michael Reichman didn't want his photograph taken with a 3 megapixel camera. <laughs> yeah, he said no less than 5 or no less than 7. Yeah. Yes. But that kind of camera is gone. Yes. There's no more market for it. I forgot it. about that camera, yes. Nobody wants something more bulky than a cell phone that does no more than a cell phone. If you're going to get a camera other than a cell phone, you want something that's superior. More functions, interchangeable lenses, you know, zoom lenses, you know, things like that. You want something that your cell phone cannot do. And so for that reason, that part of the market has died. The manufacturers have decided it's a waste of their time to produce them. So you either have cell phones, and that's what we see in Antelope Canyon. I mean, we see that everywhere, but in Antelope Canyon, there's so many people with cameras, we see it a lot. It's either the cell phone or a high-end or very high-quality digital camera. Yes. You know, something that's costing about $1,000. There's very little in between. And uh, most people have a cell phone. And so a lot of these people are going to take photographs and they're going to print them. And they are going to bypass the artist selling basically a souvenir. Because at the Grand Canyon, what we were selling was a souvenir. Yeah, because they wanted something to remind them of their trip to Grand Canyon. They decided yeah. at that time, you know, I don't want a T-shirt. I want a photograph. Right. A lot of them told us, I'd rather buy a photograph than a T-shirt. It's going to stay I'm mm -hmm. going to enjoy it for many years, a T-shirt. You wear it once or twice, and then you put it in a closet and never look at it again. So, yeah, they were buying souvenirs. But we were getting a good price for it. And we were. We were selling a lot of them because people were not making their own prints. And I think that today that market would be gone. I think we were there at the right time. It was just a transition between film and digital. So we could sell digital photographs, and we could sell a lot of them and at a good price. And, right. you know, it worked for us. But I think that now... That market well, is, now is over. even Sam's Club and Costco sell 
canvas gallery wraps, right. images. You From know. cell phone photographs. That is, you upload your cell phone photo, 18 megapixel, and you get a 20 by 30 uh, canvas wrap. It, it may not be the finest in the world, but you know what? For 40 bucks, you can't beat it. No, <laughs> yeah. you can't. Yeah. So there's a completely different reality here. There is. And what it means is not that you can't sell fine art photographs anymore. What it means is you have to look for a different market. The, yes. the touristic market is over, I think, but the market is still there. In other words, people are aware that they are not professional photographers, but if they want something that is good quality, they have to go and buy it from somebody who knows what the heck they're doing. Right. And obviously, it's tied to the cost of the home. That is, if you have a high-end home, you're probably not going to want to hang your cell phone photo printed by Costco on a canvas wrap over the mantle. You want something a little bit more valuable. And that means buying from an artist who has name reputation or name recognition. Right. That's the important thing. And so what we see is basically the death of the very low-end market. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And the new market is actually a market where artists have to work harder to get a name out there, to build a reputation for themselves, to build leverage. And uh, it means more marketing. It, it means more efforts in terms of getting your name out there, getting the word out about what you do, and doing something unique, something that people can't do with a cell phone, obviously. And that means also doing more than just a gallery wrap, you know, that you have to do something else. Well, or if you do a gallery wrap, do a good one. The word gallery wrap is a technique. It's like saying a print on paper, you know. Yes, but you can still put a nice frame around it. But with printing and printing, I mean, just right. because you print on canvas doesn't mean that that's the end of the process. I mean, there's a lot of things that are necessary to get a fine art print. Oh, it's yes. Not, you know, Costco is not exactly the Ansel Adams of the printing world. It's just one outlet. No, what I was saying is that... To set yourself apart from other photographers, you can do so many things to a gallery wrap, yeah. you know, yeah. as far as framing or you can even add texture or paint or there's all sorts of things that you can do it to make it more personal and make it fine art. You can do all of that, but you can also generate a print that is world class. Costco cannot do that. Correct. And I think it starts there. The yes. number one value of a fine art print is the print quality. And that takes years of practice. It's like saying, because I have power tools, power saws, power grinders, power drills, power senders, I can make Louis XIV furniture. No, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You have to have the skills, you have to have the training. And I think that what we see now is the artists that really can go out there and do well for themselves have the training. They spend the years necessary to learn how to make fine art prints. And like you said, they spend the time necessary to learn how to mat and frame and create a piece of quality. Because if you want more money for your work, your work has to be worth more money and it has to be a visible difference. Oh, yes, definitely. And we see what happens with artists that go out there thinking they can just, how do you say it, wing it. Right. Doing prints uh, that are so-so and people look at them and they're like, I can do as well with my cell phone. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a reality. Yes. And that's a harsh reality. We talked about how photographing in Antelope Canyon in our last podcast has raised the bar. But today, in order to get a very good shot of Antelope Canyon, you have to do many more things that you did not used to have before. Right. Because access was so hard in the past that just getting there and having a camera and knowing how to operate it was actually winning the game in many ways. Right. Today, access is easy. Cameras are automated. 
And same and with have, art shows. And it's exactly the same with art shows, and it's the same with selling fine art prints. The bar has been raised, and you have to go further than we used to go. Right. Just having some print on paper in a mat is not enough anymore. Right. You have to have a very high-quality print. And I think you have to develop memory cognition. I agree. I think you have to make yourself known. You have to be on leverage. You have to tell people, okay, the reason why my work is worth this price is because. Yes. <laughs> it's not just because I need to pay my bills. It's because there's an added value. Right. And we did not used to see that. I mean, I started doing that at the Grand Canyon. Once I learned how to uh, sell, I started doing that. But not in the very beginning. In the very beginning, we had... Uh, prints we did not even have mats i would pin them to the display oh yes and uh, that's how we did it we didn't have anything we didn't have clear bags i think at one time you actually made little out of leftover mat board that was hinged and just laid the photograph inside of that and tied it somehow and that was the presentation of the photograph that was laid out on a table in the very beginning, I did not even have bags because I did not know where to buy them. Right. They were just prints on paper. They were. And I would pin them to the Watercolor display. paper, I would I use believe. push pins to pin them to the right. paper. Yeah. Somebody bought it. It just went right off the wall. Yeah. They weren't matted. They have... weren't framed. They and weren't I packaged. I did not have any bags for them to carry it with. It was no. like, it's $20 and here's your print. Right. <laughs> you know? I don't even know if we had an envelope. So we started at the very, very beginning of the process, and I think we got away with it in a very large location, a very well-known location, you know, with people from all over the world. I'm not sure that we could do this today. And even if we could, I don't think that it would fly because everybody knows where to get the supplies. Yes. I mean, just knowing where to get crystal clear bags was a challenge. The other artists would not tell us. No, they didn't want to share the information. And that information now is available. Just do a search on the internet and you'll get it, you know. Right. It's available in my books, you know. It's available in many places. And so it's no longer a dirty secret, so to speak. No, it isn't. And that also means that the bar has been raised. Right. So it's a changing world, but it's still a world where you can sell fine art. You just have to be knowledgeable about what it takes today. That's right. what it is. And I'm sure that in the future it's going to change again. And a lot of these shows nowadays, they have too many photographers applying. Well, that's one of the things we've seen happen with our students. Students that study marketing with us, selling fine art photographs with us, they are getting a harder and harder time being accepted into our shows. Yes, And the reason for that is because, A, there is a lot of photographers applying more than ever because everybody's a photographer today and a lot of them think, you know what, it'd be nice to recoup the cost of my equipment and print and printers and computers and cameras and I'm just going to sell photographs to do that. That's one of the reasons. And the second reason is that the bar has been raised. It has. And so what was before sort of an option, you know, having a nice booth, having professional display panels, having nicely framework, having enough work. Yes. Now it has become a requirement. And we've had several students that got turned down because you have to send a photo of your booth when you apply, and their photo was just not up to par. Right, of their booth. Right. Yeah. They had comments that it looks like you're just starting. Yeah, they did not have enough work on the booth, just one or two. The pieces weren't large. They didn't have large pieces. Right, they just had one or two pieces on the wall instead of, say, four or five or six. They did not have large pieces. Their pieces were not very attractive color-wise. 
but also the framing. The framing was not attractive. It was all outdated, passé, you know, and not contemporary. Did not feel today's trends. Right. It's a completely different ball game. I mean, in the past, you frame something, you sell it. Right. People are like, oh my God, it's frame. I love it. It did not matter what frame you use. Now, if the frame doesn't match your decor, they don't want it. I agree. Because people have a higher sense of decor. You know, everything has gone up. Everything has increased in quality. You know, people are more demanding. Right. They want a better product at a better price. Well, you had a student that told you that he wanted to make his panels to do an art show instead of buying the pro panels to start with. And you said no, because this is like everybody has pro panels now. Yeah. There's no point in making your own and then upgrading to pro panels. You need to go out and get the pro panels immediately. Yeah, I mean, I told him it would look ridiculous, but everybody else is going to look better. And obviously, he may not even have been accepted because he would have had right. to send a photograph of his booth using homemade display panels. And he may I mean, not ours even were, uh, when we first started, we borrowed them, but they were pegboards, remember, that yeah. were like in the shape of an A or a right. tent. A display. A yeah. displays, yeah. and they were peg holes right. displays. And, and we used curtain hooks. Curtain hooks. To hang artwork oh, on Oh, yes. Yeah. But John, on the other side, had a fantastic display of pro panels with lights mounted on top and all of these fancy bars. And, right. I mean, he just kicked our butt. Well, yeah. <laughs> he, he knew what he was doing, and he we did. didn't. Now, he looked very professional. Yeah. He was just getting every sale. He had a waiting line, and we were just sitting on he our did. hands wondering what the heck well, is we, going on and how do I make a sale? And not understanding you know? anything. Yes. Yeah, and that was the beginning of competition. And, you know, it's very interesting because one of the artists, you know, Kerry, compared selling with John to a boxing match. He said, uh, I was in the ropes, and John was swinging. Wow. And I thought about that for a long time as being a little exaggerated, I mean, little out of place, you know, it's like this is not a boxing match and John was not swinging. He was just making sales and you weren't. Right. But I have a personal interest in boxing and I've started reading quite a few books on boxing by trainers. And I'm starting to think that Kerry was not far off the mark. He may actually have been right on. Yes. Because one of the characteristics of boxing, maybe one of the most important, is fear. That you don't want to be afraid of your opponent, but then you don't want to be overconfident to the point where you lose all fear. Right. And I think that what happened with Kerry is that he got scared of John. I mean, he was obviously in the ropes trying to defend himself, and John had no pity, was just going to knock him out. You know? And right. that's probably what happened eventually, not physically, but emotionally. And what happened with Kerry is that he gave up. Right. He stopped trying to even make sales. Yeah, and you see that when you watch a boxing match. You know, At one point in the match, a boxer gives up. It doesn't mean that they're going to stop the fight. They might go all the way to the end. They might go the distance. But they at one point decide, there's no way I can win this. I'm not going to quit. But I'm no longer going to try to knock the guy out or actually hurt him. I'm not going to throw dangerous punches. Right. Right. I'm going to throw punches, but without much expectation of an outcome as far as hurting the other guy. I think that's what happened with Kerry. You know, he gave up. Right. After doing a show with John for a certain number of days, there was a day where he just probably threw in the towel and said, Well, but I don't think he threw the towel. That's what I'm trying to say here. I don't think he threw the towel. First of all, the boxer doesn't throw the towel. The trainer does. 
But second, you can lose a fight without flowing the trout. You can go the distance. Right. Ju- the boxer just decides, there's no way I can win this. I'm just going to quit, but I'm not going to throw dangerous punches. And I think that with Kerry, it went beyond that. I think that he decided he couldn't win with John ever. Right. Because he had many more shows with John after he made that remark. And he never made it clear to me that he was getting the upper hand. He was always the underdog. He was always the one losing. It was almost to the point where he actually went to Mary Lois, you know, who was actually organizing the show. And he complained that she always scheduled him with John. And Mary Lois said, well, that's the way it is. And Kerry said, it's not fair because John beats me up every time. And Mary Lois told him, who says that life is fair? Right. You can't have a fair fight between two people of equal weight. And Kerry was a heavyweight. I mean, he had a lot of work. He was a painter, but then eventually started selling photographs to try to compete with John. He did. He he was a good artist. The only thing that was wrong with him was that mentally he was not up to par. He had been defeated mentally. And that's what John was trying to do. I mean, John went to see me one time when I was on the porch with him, and he told me this. He said, Alan, I don't seem to be able to beat you down, either physically or emotionally. And I looked at him and I said, John, there's something that surprises me, and that's, why do you keep trying? Because obviously it's not going to happen. Right. And it's only now that I realize that I was never afraid of John. I was never beat up emotionally. I felt like I was inadequate as far as my skills. I did not have the selling skills that John had, and I knew that. But what did I do? I hired a marketing consultant to teach me those skills so I could compete with John. And that's exactly what any good boxing trainer would tell you. Go ahead and build up your skills. Train. Mm -hmm. Training is where you win a fight. Right. That's what they say. They say that a boxing match is won in the gym. It's not won in the ring. It's won in the gym by the training. If you train harder than your opponent and you keep your wits together, you're not scared so that you don't lose your skills, right? When you're actually in the competition, you will win. And that's what happened with John. I hired somebody. I studied marketing. You know, we practiced together on the way to the show, remember? Oh, yes. It was such a long drive. There was nothing yeah. to do 400 but miles. We practiced how to make a sale, how to close a sale, how to do a pre-close, how to announce the price, how to do an open disclosure. I mean, on and on and on and on. And I'm sure that all these terms sound foreign to you if you're not familiar with salesmanship. And they were foreign to us when we started. But by the time we were at that level, they became very familiar and we became experts in selling. And we, were, we went from being unable to make a sale to almost losing no sales. I mean, you can't close all the sales, but we were closing out of the ones that could be closed, the closable ones. We probably were closing a good 95%. It's yes. not 95, 98 or 99%. So we, we reached a very high closing average. We raised our prices. I mean, I started selling pieces for 2000 to $4,000. Well, before the most expensive was 700 Right. And I'm now realizing that the reason why we could do all of that is because I was never intimidated by the other artists. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I mean, nobody likes being beat down. No. But it did not discourage me to the point where I believed that I couldn't win. And I think that was the difference between me and Kerry. Kerry got the point that he could never win this. Mm-hmm. 
I got the point that I needed to build up my skills. <laughs> I needed to train harder. <laughs> I was at it without any knowledge of what was going on. And if I stayed that way, the outcome was going to stay the same. John was going to keep beating me in sales and making a fortune while I made a few hundred bucks. Right. Well, another thing we discussed during the uh, rendezvous in regards to doing shows is that a lot of photographers nowadays don't really need the money. And so that also has totally changed the selling and buying and marketing process of selling photographs. Yeah, well, because it's easier to take a photograph. Mm -hmm. And so people engage in the hobby, you know, and so hobby for them, they're not interested in making money at it. They just want to recoup the cost of their equipment and printing supplies and whatnot. And for that reason, they don't really need the money. In the past, when it was really challenging to do that, People that went in it were in it because it was a profession. That's how they made their living. Right. Yeah, and there's no doubt that that situation has changed the game. Right. Because what happens is when somebody doesn't need the money, but they do want to make a sale, and they don't understand marketing, they don't have any training in salesmanship, the first thing they do is they lower their price. Right. That's the first thing they do. Right. If their work doesn't sell at whatever price they decided to ask, they lower their price. Right. And if it doesn't sell at that new price, they lower it again. And they are going to lower their price until it sells. Yes. That's the only knowledge they have of marketing and salesmanship. And it's a pretty lousy one mm -hmm. because they get to a point where they have lowered their price so much that there is no possible profit. And sometimes they actually incur a loss. That is, they are selling at a loss, meaning at a price lower than what it costs them to make the work and to be at the show and to pay for all the expenses that we have. Right. Yeah. And you cannot compete with somebody who is willing to give their work away for free, which is what we are doing. Right. If you're selling for a cost that is lower than what you spend to make the work and sell the work and travel to the show and all of that and pay show fees and all the expenses you have when you run a business, you're giving the work away for free. You are. And nobody can compete with free. No. And for that reason... It's very challenging when you have a show with artists like that. Yes. Because they are willing to do whatever. Well, and one of the artists told you himself that I don't do art shows to make money. And that just right. totally surprised you. And you said, well, what other reason is there to right. do art shows if it isn't to make money? And what That's did, the whole point. What was the answer? He never answered. He never answered. He never answered yeah. the question. I think a lot of people, if it's a hobby, they may find it enjoyable to sell their work. Right. They might just want to have the reward of being able to say, I've sold my work. People paid me to have it. They have it in their collection. You know, they invest in my work. Of course, no price is ever mentioned, but it satisfies them. Right. Personally, when somebody says, I'm selling my work and I did very well at an art show, the first question I ask is, what is very well for you? What's a good show for you? Yes. I want a number. And if they give me a number, the second question I ask is, well, what did you sell for that price? Let's say they say I made $1,000. Okay, what did you sell for $1,000? <laughs> because if you sold three forty by 50 for $1,000, well, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot. You're giving them away. Yes, you, know? you are. I mean, that means they're about $350 each. And really, for that size, 
you have divided the price by 10, literally, yes. you know. And so it's not difficult to sell something for a very low price because you're, like I said, almost giving it away, if not literally giving it away. And, of course, it means that the other artists have a problem because you either have to align yourself with these prices or face the fact that people are going to look at you and say, why do you ask so much for your work? I mean, they can't see the difference with the work of another guy and they don't understand why it's so expensive. Right. So the solution is to either make a visible difference or just go to a show that is a higher level show where you have artists that are actually professionals because at some point you just can't compete. Right. I mean, we, we went to a show in downtown, I think, Carefree, not long ago, and we saw an artist selling 16 by 20s for $18 mattered. I think so. 16 by 20 mattered. So they are, the mat size was maybe 20 by 30. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that point, what's the point, right? That, right? That's the wholesale cost. And even then, it's maybe even what it costs us to make, right? It's impossible to compete. It is. It's just I impossible agree. to compete. And when I asked him why that price was so low, you remember what his answer was? Yes. My wife wants the art to be affordable to everyone. Yeah. Wants I, everyone to be able to afford my artwork. Yeah. I mean, art is a luxury. It's obviously not available, not affordable by everybody. And even if that's your goal, you have to look at the fact that you're making no money. I mean, there's no way this person can make money. There's just no way because of the cost of production. Yes. And the fact that you have to drive to the show, you have show fees, you have to have insurance, you have wear and tear on your vehicle. I mean, you know, the expenses go on and on and on. I'm sure that if you were to talk to his accountant, he'll tell you, say, I've told him before, stop doing that. Oh, yes. (laughs) There's only so long you can write off a loss as a business and then eventually you have to make a profit. There's just no way you can make a profit. It's not possible. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is that as a competitor... You're not the accountant, you're not the IRS, you're not uh, there to judge whether or not it's right or wrong to do what he's doing. You're there to sell your work. And you can't in the face of that. No. And when we looked at the other artists, they had pretty much relying their prices on his. Yes. And so this show is basically done. It's over. Yes. You can't go to that show because no. everybody has dirt cheap prices. You have to go to a higher end show, yeah. a bigger show. You can put an X on it. Yes. Because if you go in there and you say, you know, I'm going to ask my regular prices. You won't sell a thing. No. People are going to be like, why is yours $200 and his 20 Say, so, uh, well, that's because, you see, uh, my expenses. And he said, well, he's got expenses too. They don't understand. It's a big problem. And that means that a number of shows are basically out of the running, so to speak. I agree. I mean, you have to leave these shows for these beginners that are asking dirt low prices for their work. Mm-hmm. There's no way to go in there. I mean, if you're in their situation, sure, it's a good place to start. But if you're, like us, interested in actually making money, not just trading money, right? (laughs) (laughs) You can't do these shows. No. It would just be a waste of time. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I think that's related to people that make their prices dirt cheap, is the fact that amateurs make decisions on an emotional level while professionals make decisions that are based on personal values. Yes. And I think that when an artist decides that his work is not selling or her work is not selling, and so they are going to lower the price until it sells, that's a purely emotional decision. It is. It's based on emotion. I'm tired of waiting for people to buy my work. I'm tired of not selling anything. Right. 
I'm tired of sitting here, not I'm, making any sales. Yeah, I'm tired of wasting my time, basically. Yes. You know, it's yes. time to do something, and so they lower the price, and they keep lowering it until somebody buys something. That's an emotional decision. It is. Because they are basically pissed off or frustrated. A professional doesn't do that. A professional goes with a value-based judgment, which in our case, if we went to a show like that and we realized that we're obviously overpriced and nobody's going to buy anything, we would say, well, in order for us to make money, we have to go to a different show. Yes. That's a value-based judgment. And it the is. value that we use is that we want to generate a profit. Yes. We run a business. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of money. And if we don't generate a profit, then... There's no need for us to make all of these efforts. Right. You and I would walk a lot of shows before deciding whether or not we were going to participate in a show. We didn't just pay a promoter and do a show and hope for the best. We did our homework. Yeah. Well, you have to. You have to look at a show and make sure that it's the show for you. Because if everybody at that show, every photographer at that show has dirt low prices, you know that this is what you're looking at. And if your prices are higher, you're not going to sell anything. No. <laughs> you, know, you have to be aligned. It's I mean, you can be within a 10 to 20% range. I don't think that if uh, artists ask 20 bucks for 16 by 20 and you ask 25, you're going to lose sales. But if you ask 200, nobody's going to buy from you. So there is a range. You, know, you can be a, a little bit more expensive. You can be a little bit less expensive. But you can't be 10 times more expensive. No. Yeah, and no. the range, I think, is 10 to 20% at the most. And you have to like that show. But the other thing we did is we also invited our own clients to the show. We shows. did. And when somebody buys from us regularly, they are familiar with our prices, and we don't really care about the rest of the And they don't the show. change from show to show to show. The prices remain the same. Well, our prices are the same regardless of where we sell, and they are the mm -hmm. same from show to show. But also, our clients would not even like the show. They wouldn't look at the other artists. No. They'd they... go straight to our booth. Talk I would tell us. them where we were set up. Yeah, buy from us. They never took a look at the other artists. And the other artists actually were quite upset mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, you got all the people and we got none. Said, and well, they brought their friends too. You could have invited your own clients. Well, I don't have any. Well, I'm sorry. Maybe you should have clients. <laughs> you know. And they would bring their friends. Yeah, yeah. Know? So that's a different situation. It is a very different situation. I remember one of the last shows that I did in Scottsdale I was selling really well, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw the other two photographers that were doing that show, and I was priced higher than they were, but I just left my prices the way they were. I wasn't going to lower them. And I saw them at the corner of my eye, and they were just trying to figure out why everybody was buying for me in my booth. I was wrapping. You know, I could see them in the corner of my eye. I was writing receipts and wrapping photographs and bubble wrap and everything. And I felt a little nervous just because I knew I was being watched. But then, you know, it's like, just stay focused, take care of your customers and ignore those other artists that are trying to figure out what's going on here. But a lot of it had to do with we had very high quality work and people really loved the matting and the framing. And uh, my prices were higher. At well, if time. your prices are higher, but there is a justification for it, then you're okay. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you have a regular print in a white mat and you're 20 bucks and the next guy is 200, you're not going to sell anything. But in our case, we had totally different matting and framing. We had decorated mats. We had double mats. We had shadow boxes. We had very nice 
inlet frames. We did. The Burl. difference was obvious. Burl yeah. inlay. Yeah. The problem with people that begin, you know, and a lot of our students, is that they don't want to get into the expense of buying all of that fancy matting and framing. They just want to put a simple white mat and put it in a black middle frame and be done. Well, at that point, there's no difference between what you do and what everybody else does. Yes. Or they just want to do a gallery wrap and hang it unframed. And when There's nothing that looks more like a gallery wrap unframed than another gallery wrapped unframed. People can't see the difference. They're like, okay, what is the size? 20 by 30? Okay, if you have a guy who has 20 by 30 and his price is five times less than you, what should I buy from you? And they're like, well, you know, I, I love the landscape and I do this and I'm passionate. They're like, he's just as passionate. There's no reason he accept that I'm going to give you 10 times more money or five times more right. money. <laughs> you know? And so if there is no difference, and this is one of the rules of marketing, if there's no difference between two products, the lowest price product wins. Yes. Unless you really want to spend more because you have a particular affiliation with a business or a shop or an artist. If you're just business business and you just want to save some money, you're going to go buy the cheapest product. Yes. I mean, if we do some shopping around and we want a particular product and we see it offered in two stores and one store has it for 10% more than the other, there's no reason to buy from that store unless you particularly love shopping from that store. Yes. You know, or you get a special discount or there's some reason that's personal. Otherwise, you just go to the store that's the least expensive. Right. So one way to compensate for people that are offering dirt cheap prices is to actually have a meaningful difference in your work, a visible difference. And when people come and say, my God, why is it so much more expensive? You say, well, these are the reasons. And you list them. And you have to be able to tell the potential customers all those reasons. Right. And you have to be very clear and you yes. have to be very professional and you don't mm -hmm. want to be emotional and no. or have your voice shake or being hesitant or whatever. And you also want to tell them, say, well, now that you know the difference, can you get that from this other person that you just mentioned? And they'll probably say, no, I can't. I say, well, and that's why it's more expensive. Right. <laughs> you get what you pay for. You do. That's what it is. Right. I mean, a Ferrari has four wheels. And a very low-end price car has four wheels. That's obviously not the difference, <laughs> you know. Believe it or not, I remember when you did the Grand Canyon show, other customers from other artists, they would walk over from the other artist's booth, and they were complaining that they don't ship. Well, we're not affiliated with them. We yeah. ship. You're more than welcome to buy something from us, and we'll ship it to you. But uh, Well, we made sales on the basis that we did ship, and the yes, other artists didn't. Yes. They didn't want to trouble themselves with anything except just... Uh, Hi, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, right. we shaped, you know, we reframed. Yes, we were willing uh, to reframe. And that's yeah. really interesting because there were some artists that did the Grand Canyon show that they were not going to switch a painting or a photograph from one frame to another. Right. They were unwilling to do anything right. except... They weren't open-minded no. about that whatsoever. It's that much money. You give it to me and you take it with you. I heard one customer say to a painter, but what if I pay more? I'll give you more money. I just really like this frame. Mm -hmm. I, just tell me how much more you want and I'll do it. Mm -hmm. She said, no. Yeah. He walked. Yeah. And, you know? and that brings an interesting subject, which I've been thinking about also, which is that at the Grand Canyon show, we had probably something around five to seven different artists that would take turns. Yes, and I think that these artists fit into different categories. They were people that were winners, you know, like us. We did not get discouraged. We were not afraid or we did not let our fear stand in the way of success. 
they were artists that were intimidated, and then there were some that had completely given up. Yes. They were no longer competitive at all. No. I mean, Bob, who sold little Kachina paintings, got to the point, he was older, at the end of his career, where he made actually literally Xerox copies of his paintings, yes. colored Xerox copies. He no longer made originals, and he no longer made even quality reproduction. He would just sell Xerox copies. I remember, yes. And he would put them on the table and then fall asleep behind his table. And this is a world-class location where we made thousands of dollars a day. Right. And he would just be sleeping behind his table, and people would grab a print and put the cash under... Oh, sometimes they just, they didn't want to disturb yeah, him, so yeah. they just put the cash underneath something on the table. Yeah. And I mean, I remember we were joking that we needed to go and pinch him to see if he was still alive. Yes. <laughs> yeah, make sure he's okay. And we were making him money hand over fist, and he was just sleeping on his table. Mm-hmm. And I think that was an example of somebody who had completely given up. He wasn't beyond making money if they gave it to him. Right. But he wasn't willing to do anything. He was I mean, going to work for it. Bob definitely wouldn't ship. I don't even know if he had packing material. He had nothing. I don't even know for if he the packaged For the framed pieces. His, yeah, I think he was asking $20 for Xerox copies. And I was amazed that he would actually sell something. And I think that shows people love kachinas. Yes, You can do. sell kachinas even if you're sleeping on your table. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And then what was uh, the lady that sold the cats, you know, tourist, tourist cat? Tourist cat. I forgot her name. I don't remember was her name. Was it Janet? Or? Anyway, no. she would come in the morning, set up her show, and then leave. Yes. You and I would actually make sales for her we and give her the money. Her. I would have pity. I mean, literally, this way. I just couldn't take it anymore, so I went over there and started selling and making money for her. And then when she'd come back, I'd give it all to her. And tell, I would tell her what I sold. Yeah, you got 40 <laughs> bucks, you know. We had like, I just couldn't take it. She, I couldn't take customers walking over there and not being taken care of. <laughs> she'd make 40 bucks, we'd make 4000 and she was happy, you know. But I mean, another case of somebody who had completely given up. It was easy enough to go in the morning, set up, and then just go back home and have tea and take care of her cats, right? And then right. come back in the evening and say, did anything sell? Well, yeah, I, made, I sold two postcards, you know, here. Those were people that had completely given up. They were still in the fight, in a way. You know, that's what I was talking about earlier on with the boxing game. They were still in the fight, but they had no expectation to win whatsoever. But they had not quit. Like what? You can be in the fight, not quit, not throw the towel, and still know that this is not a fight you will win. You are no longer a competitor. You see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And then in between, you had people that were in the process of deciding whether they were going to quit or continue, right? Yes. There was one guy that when he saw what I was doing with Antelope Canyon, he decided to go there and do almost the same exact shot as me, except it wasn't exactly the same. And mine was still like better than the customers. And he had photographed a moon ball, a rainbow around the moon at night. And he would go to people and he would ask them, have you ever seen a moon ball? And 99 out of 100 would say, can't say that I have. And he would say, well, let me show you. And he would show it to them. And they had no interest. Because if you have never seen something, why would you buy a print of it? Right. And it was kind of... It was tacky. Well, the light is just very different. It was weird. It was weird. It was just plainly weird. It just didn't look normal. I know what a rainbow looks like during the day, but a rainbow on a black sky with a yellow light, I mean, it's just weird. It is. And people would look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. And they would go right past him and into our booth. And I would look at them and say, well, here there's no moon ball. Say, oh, good. And I'd sell them something. But this is somebody who had not decided to give up, who was still fighting in a way. 
but in the wrong way. Yes. Their training was not there. They didn't have any salesmanship skills. No. But I also remember there was a problem with him in regards to copying your compositions exactly at Havasu Falls or Antelope Canyon or... Well, we used to joke that he never had an original file. Yeah, you know, I know. But he had never and seen so, a composition of mine that he did not want to duplicate. Yes. But that's the wrong thing to do because if you compare it again to the boxing game, what you see is a boxer that sees his opponent try one punch and hit him and then thinks, hmm... I'm, I'm going to use the same punch and hit him. It doesn't work that way. Right. If the person on the other side of the ring has been trained properly, they are using a punch that they have practiced countless times that they know how to do. They know how to send that punch. And if you just try, you're going to get knocked out. And that's what happened to him. I mean, eventually, I think he got so discouraged that he started doing weddings. He did. He actually, I think, stopped doing this show. Well, what happened is uh, Zantara decided not to put you two together. And I think eventually he just dropped out and just did. He used to advertise that he does Grand Canyon weddings. And uh, I think he did really well at that. Well, I mean, it depends what really well is, but compared to what he was doing Well, compared to what he was doing at the show, uh, um, he he was was making money. He was doing better because he was doing pretty bad at the show, yeah. But I think it's somebody who had decided that. I gave it a good try, and I gave up. But he never actually gave it a good try because he never trained himself properly. No. Good training would have been develop your own style, learn salesmanship skills, practice like we did, and so on. And there was others. You know, there was, uh, you know, Alfredo was also in that category where one day he was in the fight, and then the next day he was out of the fight. Yes. It's almost like if you take... A show as a boxing match and every day is a round, he would win a round and then lose a round. And in one day he would be on top of the world and he was going with it and he would just close all the sales. And then the next day he would get discouraged because we had made a big sales and he didn't. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's like he wasn't there. He was reading the paper and (laughs) he looked like he was going to die the next day. (laughs) We were consistent. Yes. And I think that's the difference between us and even John. John was consistent. Yes. We had good days, we had bad days, but at the end, if you look at a one-year rotation, shows averaged out to a number that was predictable. Yes. There was no bad surprises. No, not at all. No. no. And we were professionals. I mean, John actually had a very interesting way of looking at a bad show. He told me one day, if you have a bad show, you know, he called it being skunked when you sell nothing. Yes. Which I never did. I never was skunked. I never sold nothing. I always sold something. But he told me, he says, if you have a bad show, just have a good dinner. Yes. And then come back the next day because it's most likely going to be different. Right. And so he had actually a professional way of looking at it. That's a value-based judgment. It is a value-based emotional judgment is, I did very bad today, I quit. Right. That's an emotional judgment. And what was unusual is him sharing that with you. I think John. he had understood that I was a professional, that I wasn't going anywhere, that I was a winner. I was a serious contender. Right. We don't know if we ever actually beat John up on sales because we did not have the numbers. No. And he would fudge the numbers. But it's very possible that we outdid him. And I would say today that we most likely outdid him. It's most likely possible because we had very high prices. I mean, his most expensive piece was $700. My most expensive piece was close to 5000 I and remember. And we sold $2,000 pieces all day long. Well, I remember he walked across at one show and he said, you're getting that much money yeah. 
for, I don't know if it was an 11 by 14 framed or 16 by 20. He was shocked. He goes, you're getting that much money for that? And my answer to him was yes. And I said, did you ever try? He says, no, I never tried. I said, well, then how do you know that it doesn't work? He says, well, I never thought it would. I said, well, you can't think that way. You got to try. Right. And we had figured out that his prices were too low. Because yes. I went to him, he had a 40 by 50 or 50 by 60 at the time. It was a gigantic piece. It was. And he sold it for $700, framed. That was the frame yes, price. it was a frame And I went piece. to him it and I said, piece. why is it $700? Because I think it's pretty low for that. And I did not have anything of that size at the time. No, And he you said, oh, that's the most that people will ever pay for a piece at this show. And I looked at him and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And the reason why I said that is because a room at Ville Tavar was $350 a night. And so $700 was two nights. Most people stayed three nights on average. Right. That means that a stay with tax exceeded $1,000 just for the room, not counting tips, not counting meals, not counting souvenirs, nothing. Just the straight price for your stay in that room was $1,000. Why would you buy artwork that you're going to keep your whole life hanging in a very prominent spot in your home for less than you spend on your hotel room? I decided that the artwork should be at least twice what they spent. So I put mine at $2,000. Right. Because it seemed like if you're going to buy art and you're going to keep it for a very long time, because a lot of them, especially those that bought expensive pieces, they all told us, I'm going to keep this and I'm going to pass it on to my children and grandchildren. It's going to become a heirloom in our family. I realized that it had a value for them, you know, that was a lasting value. I thought, you know, it should be at least twice what we spent on the room. And so I priced it at $2,000, and I sold it all day long. Yes. And I wonder if we did not actually outdo John in terms of sales. We may very well, but we were sold at that point involved in just doing it. Right. You I know. wasn't paying attention yeah, at know, the we end because yeah. we were just busy. Yeah. Yeah. And it did not matter anymore. No. It's almost like John had faded away from our well, field of vision. And we were just focusing on what was happening at our booth. You know? Well, when you're totally focused, you no longer pay attention to things that are distracting. Right. And John was a distraction because he would uh, rack his credit card machine on purpose to make... Mm-hmm. This is way back in the days the of ironing, ironing board. Yeah. <laughs> he would rack up the ironing board to make us yeah. believe that he had the sale when there was nobody on the show. I forgot about that. He would put a sole sign <laughs> When on a big piece when there was nobody to make us believe that somebody had bought something large. It was all psychological warfare, and it disturbed us in the beginning. But then we got to a point where we were so focused, so intent on winning this, that uh, we did not even pay attention anymore. And I think at that point, we probably outdid him, but we did not even realize mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's a competitive environment. And it you is. can make a lot of money at it. You can also make no money, and you can also lose money. It all depends on your attitude. It all depends on your training. depends on your skill level. One thing that is clear is that whether it's boxing or whether it's sales, nobody's born a master sales no. person or a master boxer. No. Some people are more adept at it than others. I mean, I'm sure I have good uh, talents as far as salesmanship, but training is where it's at. Oh, yes. Because when I worked in that show, I knew nothing about salesmanship, but I learned. I developed my skills, I built my abilities, and I was able to outdo the top dog. And I was younger, and I was more motivated, and he was yes. at the end of his career. And all of that plays a role. You can't knock out the world champ at his prime, no. necessarily. But you know, if he's still competing, and he's getting older, and he loses motivation, well, maybe that's the time to go for it. And that's what we did. 
And I think that anybody can do it. You know, if we could do it, anybody can do it. It's just a matter of motivation. And I think that the thing we see less and less today is motivation. People go in there, and like you said, they don't need to make money, so they don't go at it with any sort of serious intent. But also, with a number in mind, how much money do they want to make? They have no idea. I always had a number in mind. Even when I did the shows without you, I always had a number in mind. And so I worked towards getting that number, you know, making that money. And it amazes me how people will do shows and not have a number in their mind that they want to make for the two or three days. I'm shocked at that. Well, it is shocking because it's a fundamental business approach. I mean, if you go to a store, even if you go to a McDonald's and you ask the manager how much money they're supposed to make today, they'll give you a number. Yes. Every store has a number. Well, even the Bright Angel Lodge that sells the little ice cream shop, they have a number of how much ice cream they sell every single day. Every business that is run professionally has a number. Yes. And you can do better than that number. Yes. And you can do less than that number, but you must average to that number. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how you make money. Yes. I mean, we go to Penske, you know, car dealership, and they tell us how many cars they sell a month. Yes. BMW, 80 cars a month. Bentley, 8 cars a month. They know. They, yes, they do know. They have a number. I mean, they, you could even ask the salesperson on the floor, huh? how many did you sell last month? And they would give you a number. But it's very important to know that number. Yes. Because let's say you start selling, uh, you go from BMW to Bentley, to follow the example yes. that I just gave. And at BMW, you're selling 80 cars a month, right? And Bentley is selling 8. Right. Well, it's going to look like you're doing very poorly at Bentley. Oh, yes. Because you're selling 10%. Mm-hmm. But if you know the number and you sold one every other day, you're kicking ass. <laughs> yes. Right. That right. number is there to guide you, to make you feel that you actually are achieving the goal. You're reaching the oh, goal. Oh, yes. And don't think that Roger Penske doesn't have a number no. I mean, it's like in boxing, you you look at a fighter that is matched against an opponent that is very quick and very aggressive. And in the first two or three and sometimes four or five rounds, that boxer doesn't do much. He protects himself. And you're like, what a loser is going to get knocked out. Well, not necessarily. I mean, he might. It depends what game plan he has. But if the game plan is correct, what he's trying to do is get the other guy to tire, to wear out. And by the fifth round, that usually happens, and then it starts to be active and wins the fight. Right. It's the game plan. That number is the game plan. In a boxing match, the trainer will say, stay put until the fifth round. Right. And then on the sixth, go all out. Right. You know. We're not at number six now. We're not there yet. Yeah. Slow down. He still has a little bit too much energy for you, you know. Right. You have to Take it easy. You, You go to Grand Canyon, and you know you can make thousands of dollars a day, why would you not have a number? Why would you pass on that? Why would too? you pass on that? Right. I mean, if you know you can do a certain number, then that number should be your goal, and you should work towards that number. If you say to yourself, oh, I'll be happy with 200 bucks, well, you know what's going to happen? Right. You're going to get 200 bucks. Yes, I because agree. Because whatever it is that you set as a goal, that's pretty much what you're going to achieve. Of course, provided that you're reasonable and, and you're accurate in your estimates. But if you set a goal that is ridiculously low, and you achieve it, there's no need for you to continue working. Right. right. We always set a number, and we pretty much always got that number. 
And still do. And we still do. You know, you and I That's are how you always run a talking numbers. Yeah. Well, you, the purpose of a business is to make money. So if you don't talk money, what do you talk about? Yeah. The fact that you love doing photography? Well, I can love doing photography without running a business. Right, <laughs> right. You know, you can love real estate without buying it. That's you know? true. I mean, yeah. You, but, you know, when I buy real estate, I have a number <laughs> in mind. Every professional you know, has a number. What am I going to, you know, how yeah. much am I willing to spend? Every I have a number. Every professional has a number. And I think that that's what separates amateurs from professionals. Yes, I agree. An amateur doesn't know. You ask them, how much do you plan to make today? They have no idea. Right. Or they give you some ridiculous answer, like, I'm planning to make as much as I can. Well, you know what? That's what everybody thinks. You know, that's a dream. That's not reality. Right. You know? Right. Uh, reality is saying we uh, buy artwork yeah. in the springtime or whatever time we have a number in right. mind on how much we're going to spend yeah you have to have a number. yes i agree otherwise you're shooting in the dark and not having a number is not just saying i don't have a goal it's also saying i have no idea what i can do in this show <laughs> because there are shows where you can make thousands of dollars, but there are shows where you can make hundreds of dollars. Yes. I mean, in Chinle, you know, Canyon de Shea, when I sold my work there during the Christmas uh, season, I would do in one month what I did in one day at the Grand Canyon. Yes. And so back in Chinle, a goal of a few hundred dollars was actually a high-level goal. If I made five hundred, yes. six hundred dollars at a show, I was kicking Because back. the average sale was five to ten dollars. Five, ten, yeah. That was the average sale. So it goes back to what I was saying. You're not a winner or a loser because of any other reason than you hit your targets. Right. That's what being a winner is. Mm -hmm. It's hitting your targets. Your targets are whatever they are. Winning in Chinle was not the same as winning at the Grand Canyon in terms of numbers. Right. The numbers in Chinle were much lower. To say, I'm going to do a show and I'm going to make $4,000 in Chinle was insane. It was completely aberrant. It had no foundation. But to go to a show in Chile and say, I'm going to make four or $500 was actually a very reasonable goal that, that was achievable. Yes. At the Grand Canyon, yeah. if we had started the day saying we're going to make 500 bucks, people would have laughed at us. It was ridiculous. Right. It's like you can make that in one you, sale. You can make so much more. Yeah. Why, why, yeah. why would you do that? Why would you make why? only 500 when you can make 5,000? Right. You know, it, it's, right. it makes no sense. So you have to adjust your goals to the situation that you're in. I agree. Yeah. That, to me, is the mark of a professional, setting specific goals, but also being realistic. Mm -hmm. You can't win the world championship on your first fight. You, know, you can't have a $10,000 show on your first show. Right. You have to have goals that are within your own abilities, yes. within your own skills, within yes. your own, at your level. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. There's a lot that's involved in selling. I mean, a lot. And it's all based on training. You can't invent the wheel. You don't want to learn salesmanship by just doing it because you're not going to learn it properly. Right. I remember this artist that we met at the celebration of sign arts that I talked to, you know, this photographer, who told me uh, after we started talking with marketing that he felt naked. Yes, remember? I do. And I told him, what do you mean? He says, I feel like I have no idea what people want. I'm just exposed. I have no yeah. idea what they are going to ask me. They can shoot from the hip, and they I'm, just just, th I'm just a target. Yes, they throw everything at me. They are throwing everything at me, and I have no idea how to respond, and I feel right. like I'm a target, and I'm, I feel naked, like you can do whatever to me. And I looked at him, and I thought, this guy has no idea how to sell. Because yes. we've been in the exact same situation he was in, and I never felt that way. I mean, I felt like I did not know how to answer some questions, but I never felt naked. And, of course, the minute I started learning salesmanship, you feel that you have your upper hand. 
that you know what people are going to ask and you know how to respond and you know what to do after that. Right. And you can turn questions into sales very quickly. And not let yourself get distracted. No, and more because it's not an emotional situation. Mm -hmm. It's a logical situation. And what happened right. to him is that he was scared. And when you're scared, your fears make it impossible for you to be rational, to be logical. Mm -hmm. And so somebody looks at you and says, why is it so expensive? And you're like, well, it's because it's printed on Epson photo rag or whatever, which is the answer he gave me. Because he had pieces whose prices were very inconsistent. You had one for $200, you had one for 2000 same size, same look. I mean, from a distance, they look the same. And so I started asking him why the, to explain his pricing to me. Right. I did not challenge him. I just said, you know, can you explain the pricing? And he was like, well, this one is more expensive because it's printed on a Hanimule photo rag or something like that. And I'm like, okay, well, the difference between a piece of photo rag and a piece of Epson paper is, is $150 to $3, not 1000 It's like, well, if this one is limited. I'm like, okay. You know, and it's signed. Oh, okay. I don't see a signature. It's signed on the back. Remember, it's signed mm -hmm. on the back. I'm like, well, how should I know that it's signed on the back? It's only, you flip it over. I'm like, well, I'm not about to pick up the work from the wall and flip it over. Right. Uh, and you said. I don't feel comfortable yeah. doing that. Right. He said, no, I understand, but I'll do it for you. What if I did not ask? Right. I told him, I said, you know, if your work is priced $1,000 higher because it is signed, I want that signature to be smack in my face. I want to be able to see it from... A good 20 feet away. Right. I don't want it to be a mystery on the back of well, the Well, what case. are you going to do when you have guests over? Take it off the wall and flip it around and so say, he, this he, is a signature? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's when he started. And so I, I basically told him, I said, you know, he realized that I was an expert in digital prints, which obviously he hadn't met before, you know, at least not that often that I know. And, you know, I left him. Uh, I, I said, bye, you know, thank you for helping me understand your pricing. And, and then he came back and talked to me. And that's when he said... Uh, you know, I'm sorry I did not explain properly, but I feel naked. I feel like people are yes. throwing all that stuff at me, and I have no idea how to answer the questions. And, and I you were, that's not what you were trying no, to do I was just all. trying to understand why something was 200 and why something was 2,000. Because you asked for me. For the same exact size. You said, yeah, can yeah. you tell? Yeah. Do you see something yeah. that I do not see? And I said, no, yeah. I'm not sure why there's a big difference But then I realized when he told me that, that he felt naked, that this guy was just scared. Yes. And was making... Uh, decisions that are completely emotional there's no logic behind and it. he was in a show a high-end show an expensive show an expensive yeah. show so you had money at stake and he was against yeah. professionals yeah, that had been doing that show for years yeah but also whether or not he was against professional he had money at stake because yes. that show cost us probably three to five thousand dollars and what is it 20 percent off of each sale provided you know? he makes sales yeah but even if he makes no sales he still has to pay three to five thousand well, dollars to be there well yeah because I it's agree. a three-month show right it's yes a, three months yeah. long so it's, it's it, uh, about a fifteen hundred dollar a month show it starts in january I think mid-January yeah. ends in mid-March. But he was making completely emotional decisions on pricing. You know, you can't price something $2,000 versus 200 because it's signed. You're not Picasso, you know. <laughs> you're not that famous that your signature is worth $1,500. And it can't be $2,000 versus 200 because it's on a higher-level paper. Another reason was that it's because it's mounted on wood and the other was mounted on metal. I'm like, is wood more expensive than metal? I mean, come on, you know. It was completely irrational. It was a completely wrong pricing, and he was selling nothing. Right. And all of that because he was not making value-based decisions. If right. he had said, I'm pricing my work based on size, which is what we all do, if he had said, I price my work based on the fact that it's a very 
limited edition, not just an edition of a thousand versus two thousand, but let's say an edition of five versus an open edition, I would have said, yeah, that makes sense. There's only five, and over there, I can you know, have as many as you can possibly sell, you know. But they should be all signed. Yes. And they should be all printed on the same paper. I mean, you can't charge $1,000 more because you use this paper versus that paper. Right. It makes no sense. So it is a challenging environment, and it's something that people have to learn. And so if you want to learn, come talk to us. (laughs) We know how to do this. We are here. We are available. We're professionals. We do this for a living. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for listening, and uh, we look forward to having you on our next podcast.